Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me as always is... Catherine! And we are back to discuss another little horror property that you may have heard of back in the day. Just the Grudge. Just but a not, tiny one. But not one of the good Not the ones. good ones. <laughs> um, no, we're going to talk about the Grudge remake slash prequel slash... Ew. <laughs> Simulquel slash sidequel? Um, the 20... <laughs> Yeah, the uh, 2020 uh, release of uh, of just The Grudge, um, but a redone version, right? We're trying to bring these properties back from the grave, where at least in the United States, Juan has been for quite some time. Uh, so we're going to talk about The Grudge 2020, starring John Cho, Betty Gilpin, uh, Andrea Riseborough, another uh, Andrea Riseborough film, a little discount Tilda Swinton for us, uh, Demian Bashir, uh, and, and numerous other horror luminaries. Uh, it is certainly a film that has uh, at least brief cameos from people you will recognize. Yeah. Uh, although I think John Cho being top billed in this film is, is a bit disingenuous. Um, He's in this movie for about 12 minutes. To say the um, least, because <laughs> I, I watched this expecting to see a lot more of him. I also expected M- Mucho John Cho and got not Maybe Mucho John Cho. Tiny John Cho. Just, so just a touch of Cho. A touch of Cho, right? I mean, really, the, the briefest waft of Cho hitting your nasal <laughs> passage. <essence of Cho. laughs> <laughs> yes. But so what I really want to talk about to start off, though, is is... The, the rise of Japanese horror in the United States, which, of course, we can pinpoint um, right back down to The Ring. Um, <sighs> the Ring, uh, an adaptation of a Japanese film called Ringu, uh, which the thing that I love about The Ring and Ringu, even the, the American remake of The Ring, is that it retains the sort of essential spirituality of Ringu, right? Because that's what... The Japanese horror scene kind of brought was, uh, you know, Japanese culture and and Japanese religion have very different relationships with the concepts of things like ghosts. Yeah. Right. Here in the United States, we've got ghost hunters, right? We got Zag Baggins just running around, yeah. kicking down doors, yelling if ghosts are there. We had the, um, the you know, rooter guys of, of ghost hunters. <laughs> right. We had the ShamWow guy, ghost hunters. <laughs> And, and so we kind of treat it like this this spooky, you know, little, oh, yeah, I wonder if there are spooky ghosts, right? Like um, my, my family and I recently went on a vacation to uh, St. Augustine in Florida, which is one of the oldest you know, populated areas in the United States. And, you know, every two steps it was, oh, visit the ghost house where such and such died. It's creepy, you know. Because, you know, we have this kind of cultural, like, oh, that's kind of an interesting little sort of like sideshow attraction kind of thing. Japan takes their ghosts much, much more seriously. It's meaningful. Um, right. It's it's tied to things like pain and death. Like I said, the ideas are the same. I mean, we're really just different cultures expressing the same sort of core principles about what does it mean to die? What does it mean to be left behind? You know, these, these big sort of cultural questions. But the Japanese have a very different relationship. So Ringu... Um, you know, treated this this ghostly presence with a kind of ferocity 
and a kind of danger and, of course, a, a visual representation of the pale face, long hair that would now become iconic. But, you know, so so the ring kind of kicks something off in the United States. And, of course, when that happens, studios start looking for stuff. They can right? smell what? the profit. Right. The profits are right there, right around the corner. We just need to go and find one of these things. And uh, one of the films, and I would argue probably apart from The Ring, the most successful film uh, was The Grudge, released in 2004, starring a, a, a then very early in her career, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Um, I think she was right. On, I think Buffy had just started at that point, um, but she was certainly not a household name and she certainly was a very big star. And so the, the Grudge is the, the American remake of a, a Japanese film, which actually it's the, the third film in the series. They'd already done two. Yeah. Um, uh, called Juwan or The Grudge. All directed uh, by Shimizu, Takashi Shimizu, I guess uh, is his name. Um, and he also directed the American remake, which was the thing that kind of set it apart at the time. I don't know if you remember that or not. Uh, um, I do, I do, and I, I was kind of, I was looking forward to it, but at the same time, I was very underwhelmed because it's just that it's the same movie, <laughs> like it's exactly the same. It's very similar. Um, the original Juwan was because the the two that had come before were basically like Japan's version of direct to video, right? They yeah. were directed to, to video. Um, they were not theatrically aired. The, the original, you know, Juwan, The Grudge that we're familiar with was the first one to actually, you know, be in theaters in Japan. And so that, and, and I guess that's one of the things I want to talk about, because this film, the 2020 Grudge, is actually structured more like the original Juwan. A bit. The, the Japanese Juwan, because it followed the original Japanese Juwan while it was about the family, you know, Kayako. And, and it has timelines in it. Right, there are multiple timelines. Almost all of the Grudge movies are non-linear narratives, and right? that's a, and that's very much a Japanese thing. Like that is just that's something that I know. Every time I watch a Japanese movie with someone who doesn't watch a lot of Japanese movies, they're like, "What the fuck? How do you? How can you tell what's going on?" They just <laughs> don't give a shit about linear time, and I love it. No, and so it gives the first film, especially this kind of vignette quality. Right, you're sort of seeing these different people. Um, interacting with the house, right? Because that's kind of the core concept of the grudge. Ringu, it's about, you know, sort of personal mistakes, like, you know, a guy, like, it was a school teacher in the original Japanese version, who, like, he, like, has an affair, and all of these things spiral out of control. It was all about, you know, sort of personal error. The grudge, while it sort of centers on that, is about how a, a spirit, a grudge, can linger in a place if something terrible has happened there. And then that place becomes a sort of infection point to spread out, right? And, and again, that ties very culturally back to a lot of Japanese ideas about location, and positioning, like all of these elements about the natural world are very important for developing and maintaining your internal spirit as well. And this is kind of the inverse of that, right? Something terrible happens, it ruins a place basically forever. And so the Which, original grudge was... It is like the uh, essence you know, of, of haunting. I mean, that really does kind of sum mm -hmm. it up. Yeah. But it's it's very, I don't know, it's very well articulated in Japanese movies. 
Yeah, it's it's more aggressive than just oh, there could be a thing here. It's like no, if you touch this place, you're you're doomed, <laughs> right? You're fucked. <laughs> like if you even step inside these walls, like the ghosts even know how bad it is. They'll pull you inside the walls to make sure that they're with you forever. Yeah. Um. So it's it's a very and that's nice too because you know there's some of the there's some rules that they're able to establish to sort of you know like oh hey this is what's going on. Um. So all that stuff kind of works. So the original Juwan, you know, we've got a couple of different things. We've got the original family, because that's where everything starts, is a family sort of fractures, and the husband kills the wife, kills the son, kills the cat, always very important. Yeah. And then... Um, that's how you know then, he's bad. He kills the cat. That's right. And and so he kills the cat. That's how you know he's truly evil. And then he dies, and now, like, all of these spirits are inside the and so the first Japanese film is all about various people and how they come into that home, right? So yeah. a new family moves in, they get screwed. Some teenagers who are, you know, trying to hang out in a spooky place, they go in there, they get screwed. Uh, a social worker who's trying to like find the kid because um, he's supposed to be in her class, but he's never showed up. She goes in, she gets screwed. You know, so it's, it's just this very kind of thing. And then, then in the background of that, you have these two detectives trying to like figure out what's going on. Um, and ultimately coming to understand that it's the house, right? That's where this is, is coming from. So this film is, is kind of patterned on, on that concept. We follow the police much more than we do the, the characters that are being grudged, if you want to call it that. <laughs> the, the grudgies. <laughs> oh no, Steve, I've been grudged. <laughs> Not again. I'm being grudged. <laughs> Um, so, you know, we're very much following the, the detectives. So um, I guess, you know, the original 2004, we'll talk about the, the original Grudge series a bit, um, which I, I, I rewatched the, the first Grudge for this. Um, I did not revisit two and three, but I have seen them. I have very, for some reason, I have very strong visual rem memories of two, you know, that apartment building mm -hmm. and how kind of like gross it was which it then becomes like the main, that's like the main set of the third one, which was direct to video. That was not a theatrically released film either. Um, but you know, the second one had Amber Tamblin in it, but so this one, they basically take the, the Riku story from the first one about the social worker and they rework that into this story. Um, or in the, the story of the original 04 grudge where basically you've got this home, um, this woman kind of is obsessed with this American teacher. The husband finds out, kills the family. The teacher finds out, kills himself. And then a new family moves into the home six months later or whatever. And that's an American family. And so they are, they, they have an aging mother, right? Uh, and so they have to bring in a, an aid worker to make sure that she is um, cared for. And so that aid worker, Yoko, becomes the first casualty of all of this. Basically, she's the first one to die. And then Sarah Michelle, or Sarah Michelle Geller's character is her replacement, who is also an American. And then everything kind of spirals out from there. So they really just took kind of like one of the stronger central stories of the Japanese film and then just adapted it into the full version of the American film. And then some pieces of the other ones, like the teenagers and whatnot, those show up in the later sequels, the American sequels. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on. I think in, on, on the whole, they're, they're pretty well written, you know, in terms of story, I think they, um, 
they brought something really new that we were not getting a lot of in the 2000s when it came to horror. You know, it was they were much spookier. Um, obviously, there are jump scares. Lots of jump scares. They're pretty bloodless, too. So I think this is yeah. part of the first time period where horror didn't have to get an R rating when, because like, it didn't have to be bloody. Japanese horror, that was, that was the thing, is that you didn't have to watch anything gruesome. And I think that's why it really took hold, because it was just so different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. I think that it, it opened up the... It opened up the, the sub-16 crowd to come see your horror movie. Yeah. Whereas your traditional slashers, your Friday the Night, you know, Friday the 13th, your Nightmare on Elm Street films, they were locked inside the R box. Right? Yeah. You can't scale back, right? You can't have, I mean, I'm sure we'll get one at some point, but can you even imagine what a PG-13 Nightmare on Elm Street would look like? Uh, bad. It would look really bad. I mean, I mean, <laughs> like, we got the TV series, and that was pretty bad. Ooh. I mean, it, you basically you're just gonna you would you would be turning Freddy Krueger into the Crypt Keeper at that point. Oh, you know, God. he's just this kind of cackling monster running around think in the about background. The Crypt Keeper, that's just deeply upsetting. No one wants to think about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just how do you get away with that? How do you play that? But these Japanese horror films, since they were more sort of esoteric and they're dealing with ghosts and it's really more about the ghost just basically scaring you to death is, is what's happening i mean there's, there's some sort of possession maybe but you know it, it, if you go to video games where this has been an element of japanese video games for a long time. ever yeah right i mean you go back to not only the original resident evil which is a little bit more of an action game but you can see the horror beats inside of it um but you know obviously things like silent hill Right, where you've got a much more sort of slower, more meandering kind of horror. It's not about being, you know, shot in the face with a shotgun or stabbed through the guts with an axe. You know, it's about, oh, I came around a corner and there's this dead thing in the middle of the room and I don't know what it is, but I should probably not touch it. What should I do about this dead thing? Right. And it's, it's just a very different approach to creating horror and horror atmosphere that typically when it gets filtered through the american sensibility gets we'll call it updated <laughs> where it's like well you know that's how they did it but this time the ghost is going to make her head explode you know like in scanners <laughs> um you know <laughs> like we get a lot of that kind of stuff that happens but these japanese horror films i guess again my theory would be because horror was in such a sort of despondent state i think they were allowed to sort of be translated with as few updates as possible. Obviously, the, the American version of The Ring makes some changes to the origin story, but the function of what the of what you know Sadako you know, is, is doing and we must in, also in not forget really who directed the American version of The Ring. Also true. Yeah. Um, I mean, just a little director. You may have heard of him. He made a couple of movies that were pretty popular. They got Gore Verbinski. Oh my god! Um, you know, when I think about that, I just I still can't believe it. Like Gore Verbinski, really? Gore Verbinski. I mean, he he directed Mouse Hunt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I liked Mouse Hunt, buddy. Mouse Hunt's great. It's the <laughs> best. Love Mouse Hunt. Uh, one of Nathan Lane's finest performances. But I I really think that it it's one of the reasons why they exploded like they did because the original Grudge, the O four Grudge cost them roughly 10 million to produce. They shot it mostly in Japan. 
It was directed by Shimizu himself. So he was you know, working in a, a place that he felt comfortable. They made it for 10 million bucks. And again, no big stars in it. You know, Sarah Michelle Geller was the biggest star in it. And she was not even that big. She was a TV star at that point. So um, shot it for 10 million bucks. That thing made almost $200 million. Crazy. Just crazy amounts of money. Other sideline note, who do we see emerging as the producer of The Grudge? Um, and bringing this horror film in, seeing an opportunity within the realm of horror that you could push, see if you can make some quick cash, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so who produced it? The Ghost House Pictures. Mm-hmm. Production arm of one Samuel J. Ramey. Um, that's not his With- name. <laughs> name is, doesn't matter. Samuel um, Ernest <laughs> Ramey. <laughs> Samuel John Ramey. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's Raimi and Tapert again, seeing a trend in horror developing and being one of the first to get on board and make something happen. Um, so this this honestly, these may be the reason why Sam Raimi didn't have to do any work for ten years in terms of directing because he's just riding that sweet sweet grudge you just, money. You just sit on um, but uh, yeah, so I, again, I, I like to point out stuff like this because Raimi, in addition to being a sort of world class director, a truly fascinating visionary of this era of film. He is also one of the most cagey and capable producers in all of Hollywood. Uh, he knows, I would say like 90% of the time stuff that's going to hit. Cause if you look at just his TV work, right? I mean, I'm not a big, you know, Xena, the warrior princess and Hercules fan, but there are a lot of like, people who are a, like a shocking number. <laughs> And those people made a lot of money. I didn't. I didn't love Spartacus on Showtime, but I know a lot of people who did, yeah. right? And all of those are Sam Raimi, Bob Tapper productions, right? Like they've they've been running that stuff through his Renaissance Pictures arm for years. So it's Raimi's. Raimi's a smart dude, and he saw an opportunity here. And again, I think one of the keys about the Grudge, and one of the things that makes the original hold up fairly well is they didn't take it away, right? Like, I don't, I, I, and I'm not saying that Verbinski's ring is bad for doing this. I, I'm not. But one of the things that I think gives The Grudge a particularly good flavor, especially now, is the fact that it's the original creator being asked to produce it yeah. just in this other American venue. And and I think that works. Now, I'm not going to, you know, we're not going to talk a ton about the sequels. We'll probably talk about them a little bit as we talk about this version. Um, and they, they do degrade. I think The Grudge 2 is fine. Uh, there's really nothing wrong with that when it just kind of spirals and continues to tell um, the same story as things go down. Sarah Michelle Gellar appears briefly. In that's, that that's really the problem is that these movies don't go much of anywhere. Um, they're great, mm-hmm. but they, they have like a gimmick. They have a thing. And once right. you catch wise to what that thing is, well, you've kind of seen it. You've seen most of what the film has to offer. Um, so just to give some perspective on early 2000s horror, I, I, I've got a list here of horror films released in the year 2000. Now, obviously, The Grudge came out in 2004, but the, the sort of Japanese horror renaissance sponsored, you know, sort of pushed into existence by The Ring and Ring uh, and the, the, by Ringu and The Ring over here is, is all developing around this time. So just to give us some perspective, here's the kind of horror that was being released in the United States in the year 2000. Okay. And I'm just going to call out a few. I can't, I'm not going to read the whole list. Book of Shadows, Uh Blair Witch 2. Uh That's right. Blair Witch 2 Uh came out this year. 
um, the weird pseudo documentary film with the guy from Burn Notice in it. Uh, yeah, Book Shadows Blair Witch 2. That came out. Uh-huh. Uh, we have, I know. <laughs> we have um, Dracula 2000, oh. of course, where sexy Gerard Butler plays Dracula and Johnny Lee Miller, a.k.a. sick I boy blame, from Train Spotting, chases him down. I blame that movie for, for cursing us with Gerard Butler. Oh, yeah. There were some people who were super into Gerard Butler after this. I movie. was friends with was, one of them. Because <laughs> he was sexy Drac. Mm, so sexy. Uh, we got Hellraiser Inferno. Well, <laughs> the first Scott uh, Scott Derrickson, now horror, you know, indie horror darling. I guess. Just released The Black Phone. Yeah. Uh, which apparently is quite good. Uh, that was his first film. I, I, Hellraiser Inferno was not good. <laughs> Hellraiser Inferno, however, is it's not, not good. good. Now, if you if you if you stack up all the Hellraiser sequels after two, which two is is kind of the last one that you can just sort of unequivocally say that's a good movie. It's not a great movie. It's a good movie. But three is abysmal. Uh, the only the literally the only thing to watch about it is that it has Terry Farrell from Star Trek: Deep Space Nine in it. It's the only reason to watch it. Um, I have a weird love of love of bloodlines, the space one, just because <laughs> I think funny. it's so it's so <laughs> ridiculous that I kind of am like, oh, this is so silly. Also, one of the first film appearances of Adam Scott from Severance is in that movie. Oh my god! Uh, he plays he plays the the guy who commissions Lamarchand's box. Box. He plays his assistant. He does. Um, wow. He does. Yes, and he looks the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Adam Scott is not aged. He was like 19 when he filmed that part, and he looks the same. He's so it's ridiculous. Um, yes. Um, so Hellraiser Bloodlines, it's not good, but I have a weird relationship with that one. Inferno is, is they took a break, because basically Clive Barker was like, you guys have ruined everything. I don't <laughs> want to work with you please, anymore. Please stop making Hellraiser movies. <laughs> And um, and they didn't, and so they made Inferno, which again supposedly was a a script that Derrickson and this other guy had developed on its own. Because if you watch Inferno, it's really this like weird murder mystery where you're trying to hunt down this child killer called the Engineer, and then everything at the end kind of gets morphed into being <laughs> like a Hellraiser scenario, but it's not. So it was really a script that they must have had or had been developing, and then they somebody gave them a green light on a Hellraiser sequel. Like, all right, put Penhead in it. It was like a, or, it, it was a weird like, how is this a Hellraiser movie? And I feel like a lot of them edge into that territory, though. Why? Why yes, is this I, called Hellraiser? And everything after this, the next two or three, that basically because we got Hellraiser Hell World, which was the one where Hellraiser was an online video game. Also, and who Lance is Hendrickson, naming these movies? <laughs> I know, like, dude. They're so help? bad. I I know way too much about the Hellraiser franchise, unfortunately. But but yeah, they just kind of go down from there. And and the last two, I think, which was like Judgment, and then there was another one. That they may have just called it Hellraiser. I don't remember. But it was Hellraiser something. Maybe Apocalypse. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Um, were made quite literally on like shoestring 75K budgets just to keep the Hellraiser license because it was going to revert back to Parker. Um and so we're getting a remake of that, supposedly with much bigger budget, you know, new, new creative team, new producing team. So I maybe, don't know, but yeah. So Hellraiser Inferno, we got Hollow Man. 
Oh my god. Now, what we call the, the ladder Verhoeven. And that makes me want to like try and say a good word about it, but I just can't. It's a bad movie. It's not good. Yeah, yeah, Hollow Man's rough. Elizabeth Shue's in it. It's the only saving grace. Um and and yet every scene that she's in, I just I don't believe any of it. <laughs> she looks tired. It's just so bad. She's very sleepy. Um we did get pitch black that year, which I yeah. do have. I, that's, that's a, so, I mean, I don't, saw it. again, I mean, that movie was just very it, true. It flew it under the radar. Gone. We also got, and I, I want to point this out specifically that our, our appetite for horror in the United States had faded so that in the year 2000, we actually got both the first scary movie mm. of which there would be like five, I think. Nah. And we also got that one. Shriek, if you know what I did last Friday the 13th. Oh my God. Which was like the big, it was scary movie without calling it scary movie. And like we got Scream 3 that year, which is where the Scream series took a hard turn to the like, why? Hard turn, more like Um, hard pass. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We also got Urban Legends Final Cut, which, you know, who doesn't remember Urban Legends Final Cut? These are very dark times. Exactly. Horror was in a terrible place. Somebody needed to come along. We're still uh, a couple years away from Zack Snyder and James Gunn. Zack Snyder and James Gunn, it's worth mentioning. Reinvigorating zombies with the Dawn of the Dead remake. Like We're still a ways away from that. But basically what I'm trying to say in a very roundabout way where I can also make jokes is horror in the United States (laughs) in the 2000s sucked. There was very little interesting happening these are all sequels and and like bad interpretations of previous films it it just none of it really felt original none of it was a good idea most of this stuff should have never been made and so it doesn't surprise me that when these japanese horror movies started trickling over here even like notoriously idiotic hollywood executives were like you know there might be something to this. This is pretty good. So, we, we might be able to do something with this, especially if we can keep it PG-13. Holy shit. We just made a billion dollars. <laughs> um, and and so I, I think it's it's really cool because now Japanese horror is, is kind of infused into the DNA of American horror. And I think a lot of people are it's become much more of that horror melting pot that we can get. I will say another one that came out in 2000 that was not bad necessarily was the Final Destination series. The first which, one was great. Um, the first Final Destination is great. There the rest of them in are... in that movie that I will never forget as long as I live. <laughs> yeah. Um, worth noting that those films are the product of James Wong and Glenn Morgan, yep. who I will always love for writing some of the absolute yeah. best episodes of The X-Files. Yeah just so, so good so good um and it was actually if i remember correctly and i'm i, I want to say that final destination started as an x-files spec script for an episode that got rejected and it would have been a great episode and they it would have been it would have been so they just developed it into their own their own deal but in any case so 2000 horror was ready for a change the japanese film market rode in on a beautiful 
White horse. I, I don't know. White horse, I guess. Sure. I mean, you know, something Kurosawa-esque, I guess we would have to pick. And and, and sort of brought an, a fresh injection of imagery and ideas to a horror genre that unfortunately was absolutely stale, right? There was just no originality. I mean, we're deep into like H2O and, and Halloween, Halloween 7 territory here. Like things are bad at this point. And, you know, here we get some good news. So Grudge comes out, makes a tremendous amount of money, just an absolute nutty film, nutty amount of money. And um, they make two more diminished returns. And then at least in the United States, the series goes on hiatus. Uh, it's still very successful in Japan. They've got like five more in Japan, including Freddy versus Jason style. Kayako versus Sadako film <laughs> where basically they smashed ring and grudge together and then had them like do a knockdown drag out. I'm guessing Sadako's like crawling out of TVs and Kayako's like popping out of closets. I, I can't imagine what that movie is. I've never seen it, but I, I yeah, I skipped that one, but you know, might be worth a look. <laughs> eh, might be worth a checkout. Movies are Who really knows? bad. You know, might as well start watching some of the bad ones. <laughs> That's right. Even bad ones can be fun. That's why we're here, right? <laughs> but uh, let's talk about this grudge film. So this is the the 2020 release. It kind of, you know, it was a, a pandemic film, unfortunately. Came out during the pandemic. Um, they held it for a while. Um, but this, unfortunately, was a, I, I guess it's right before the pandemic hit is when this came out. This was uh, January of 2020. Um, as Red Letter Media would say, fuck you, it's January, <laughs> um, which pretty much tells you all you need to know about how the studio felt this film would do. Uh, they knew what they had, and, and what they had was a bit of a stinker, and I, I want to talk about maybe why. Um, so the plot itself, as we mentioned, this is, I've seen this referred to as a side quote, <laughs> which I think is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but the original three grudge films, even though the last one came out in like 09, really take place over just like a two year span. It's like 2004, 2006. This is the events of those films unfolding. And so this film is happening while those are happening. And so it's, it's kind of, I'm not going to say that I hate the approach, right? I'm kind of like, okay, I'm kind of okay with them you know, rolling this back, making it a bit of a period piece and, and sort of having characters or whatever sort of come in, but they don't really do anything with it. That's the yeah, problem. They, <laughs> they don't do anything with it. And that's the, that's the real issue. So the setup here, so I mentioned back when we were talking about the original um, American grudge that there was a, a an in-care home aide named Yoko who dies or disappears and eventually find out she dies. And then she's replaced by Sarah Michelle Geller, who becomes our sort of like main character. Well, this film, the opening of this film gets right to business, wastes absolutely no time. We go immediately right back to the house, the same house featured in all the original grudge films. And this time another American woman is leaving. And, and so we find out that before Yoko was the in-house aide, this woman, had been the in-house aide for that American family. So there was another unnamed in-house aide other than Yoko. There's just Americans everywhere stinking up the joint. Just also American. And she, something's wrong in the house. Again, it's very non-articulated because 
presumably, I mean, at this point, it's been 10 years since the last Grudge movie was released in the U.S. Theoretically, you have nearly a, a new generation of filmgoers who don't know anything about the Grudge franchise. Um, and so you've you're got to kind of explain it as you go, I suppose. But she walks out of the house. She's on the phone. She's trying to get a hold of Yoko. She can't. And she's telling her, oh, I'll leave you the keys and blah, blah, blah. But I, you know, I can't stay. I've got to get home. And, and, you know, this is now the branch, right? Cause I, I guess what we're, the approach that we're going to take with the grudge based on this film is that the grudge is a virus. You can carry the virus with you to your house oh. and it will follow you yeah. and it will kill you. Good. And then your house becomes the new grudgy house. And then more grudges happen because people hang out in your house. Very right? And it just sort of, yeah. it just sort of spreads outward from there. And, you know, again, I, as a core concept, I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah. All right. Sure. Yeah, why it's not? not right? It's not the worst thing I've ever heard. No, it's, it's fine. Especially if you want to tell new grudge stories in different places, right? Because it's also going to eventually strain the limits of, of belief for that, you know, oh, well, this ancient, this house where these people died 20 years ago, people go in here and then they immediately die <laughs> and no one's figured out, maybe we should just burn the house or something. So um, it, they sort of set it up. I did see one reviewer, uh, Elvis the Alien, uh, I watch this stuff occasionally, and, and he reviewed this. And he said, I feel it's appropriate that the first major scene of this film features piles of garbage because <laughs> that's what fair. you're getting piles of garbage um but so in any case our, our story begins we get a title card that comes up says 2004 and this woman is leaving she's going to head home you know back to like pennsylvania or something and as she's leaving those piles of garbage like reach out and grab her right we get the, the white pale arm reaching out of the trash can grabbing at her ankles um but she she just has to get home so so that's what kicks this off and then we're kind of moving around between 2004 and 2006 again the film experiments experiments with nonlinear narrative but it it is not adept at dealing with those nonlinear narratives well a because there's not enough time passing and b we have these detective characters who are stable, right? Like we know what they're doing and their story is basically linear, but then we're just jumping around to find out what's happened to some of the people who've come into contact with the house. So sort of, you know, not a great structure. Uh, the director is uh, Nicholas, I'm going to say Pesci. Uh, I don't, huh. I'll just say Pesci because then Pesci. I can make a lot of like, I can make Pesci some, jokes. Some, some Joe Pesci jokes, right? And be like, hey, come on, we're making the movies. Um, but uh, it was both directed and written by him. And I, I'm not super familiar. He'd only made two other films prior to this. I had heard of The Eyes of My Mother, uh, which came out in 2016. Um, it, it was not a, a huge film by any stretch. I, I think it was on the convention circuit and stuff. Uh, you know, but it was a low budget horror film. Very strange. Uh, <laughs> And not like in a like, oh, that's really cool. But like, just in a like, I don't understand what's happening. Um, don't get this. Basically, movie. basically, it was a girl. She lives on a farm with her parents. And then her mother, who's like a surgeon or something, maybe a veterinarian, I, I don't remember. Um, she like has the girl around while she's doing surgery on animals. And so one day she has to like 
And again, I don't remember the setup or situation. I'm sure it was an infection or something, but she has to like remove the eyeballs from one of the animals. Like oh. just cut them out. Oh. Oh. Okay. And the girl's there for that. And then like somebody, there's like a home invasion. The mother gets killed. <laughs> Not sure. Yeah. So yeah, there's a home invasion. There's a home invasion. The mother gets killed. Um, and but they don't kill the home invader. Like the father comes home and they don't kill him. They, they like string him up in the bar for reasons. Um, so they bury the mom, and now it's just the father and the daughter. And French, the I think the girl's name is like Francesca or something. She starts visiting the murderer guy, and he starts being like, "Man, it's really fun to kill people. Killing people is great, and I just I love it. It makes me feel so good." And the girl's like, "Wow, that sounds interesting. I, I think I might like to kill people." Oh. And so, oh, it's that kind of movie. Yeah, and so she, <laughs> he he goes through that spiel, and she's like, "Yeah, killing people does sound fun." And then she like removes his eyes because you know we saw that before, and you know because again the movie's called "The Eyes of My Mother." That's important. Oh, I get it. But basically, like the girl keeps this guy alive in the barn, and they like have sex, and she eventually okay. gets pregnant. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, that's what I would do. And so uh, she eventually gets. Yeah. Yeah. The, father, the father dies she meets a girl at a bar decides she wants to kill her because you know the guy's killing, killing is fun, is fun. Um, she jokes that she murders her dad girl tries to leave kills her, chops her up keeps her body in the refrigerator She get, she, they sleep together with the murderer guy again she gets pregnant, I know she's pregnant <laughs> And then she has a baby, and then she has a baby, and then she kills the the guy, the like the mm. murderer guy, like the guy that murdered her mother and has been strung up in the barn for like years. She finally kills him. The boy grows up, <sighs> and he's like ten. I, it's not a great movie, and it's it's mostly just excuses for this girl to, like chop people up, right? Okay. It's it's it's. I think it was filmed in black and white, if I remember right. Oh. It's, it's fine. Right. It's just, it's fine. But it was just like, I, I wouldn't watch that and be like, let's give this guy the grudge. <laughs> you know, that's all I'm saying. That seems trustworthy. It seems like a guy that can handle the grudge. You know, I mean, like there's a lot of eye popping thing or out. Two about movies. There's a lot of baby murdering. I don't know. Mm. You know, it's like, but anyway, uh, his direction is mostly okay. Although there are certainly shots in this that I, I question why they were done the way they were done. Most of it's very, very normal, very pedestrian. <laughs> like it's just, it's medium shots. It's wide shots. It's, it's very typical. Um, but then every once in a while they'll be like, Oh, why, why are we looking at this from this angle? Like, what is the purpose here? But so, I mean, I think Pesci's fine. Um, I, I, I hope he was cheap. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, hopefully they didn't have to pay him a lot or anything, but, um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I've talked a lot, but it, it's, it has all of the trappings of a grudge film. Like all the pieces are here. But the, whoever was putting together this jigsaw puzzle was one of those people that's like, eh, fits close enough. And then they just kind of like jam it in, even though it's not the piece for that part, but it's just a blue sky. So nobody will ever really know mm. that kind of thing. 
it just it feels like that where it's like well we, we've got all our pieces assembled we have scary ghost lady people should have, like this <laughs> we have cre- with creepy house we have person in you know shower or bath being assaulted you know we've got all the, you know everything's here um but it's just not really hanging together or it didn't hang together super well for me um so i don't know where where are you at before we kind of you know get into spoilers um this this movie was underwhelming i guess that was my biggest thing is mm-hmm. it, i don't feel I well, I have a very, very strong affection for the original Japanese Grudge movie. I loved it a lot. It was one of the earliest J horror films that I saw, mm-hmm. um, and I just I love it. I actually just recently rewatched it, and I only fall deeper in love with that movie. So it's already got a lot to stand up against because I didn't even sure. love the the Sarah Michelle Gellar american remake just because i was like well i've already seen the best one the one that came from japan um so so i recognize i always come into these movies with a bit of a bias like i'm probably not going to love it but at the same time i thought well at least the hallmarks will probably be there but then uh, they really weren't there wasn't a lot of the horror that I was expecting. <laughs> like I don't I don't feel like it for me I don't feel like it fits in with the rest of the series very well. It yeah, I think it, it fits in with the they wanted to make it fit in with the first grudge movie. Like that was yeah. their seemingly their goal. They wanted a way to call back A they needed to to explain where the grudge came from, which I think was number one mistake. Not necessarily. I, I, I mean, always it's, it, think that's a mistake. Like over explaining and and over explaining anything is just not in the spirit of Japanese movies. <laughs> right, and, and you know, ambiguity is fine. And I think it would have been fine to have another tragedy if you wanted to set it in America instead of Tokyo for some reason. <laughs> you know, have another tragedy and set off a new grudge because that's basically all that happens is we're just trying to transport the grudge to America. Um, and they came up with a way to do that through this, this, you know, other aid worker that was in the house with, uh, Kayako and, and Toshio and has this encounter and decides to go home. Like, you know, I, that's, that's fine. Like I get it. Yes. Whatever. Good. But you know, if, if you establish that the grudge is created when something terrible happens, then just have another terrible thing happen yeah. in America yeah. and just go. And be like a bit looser and maybe more original with this interpretation. And honestly, what I was expecting was that at some point, because I was like, okay, well, we're set during 2004. So the only reason you do that is if you want to have these little crossways and connections with other pieces of the grudge movies, right? Yeah. You know, for the fans, you know, quote unquote. So I was like thinking one of these, one of these groups would somehow connect to some of the characters in the other ones like maybe you know the dude that nope. lived in the apartment building or something but they don't do anything they don't do with any that. of that so i'm like why set this in 2004 then or, or 2004 to 2006 like why even waste the time if you're not going to say ha 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 fan of grudge movie number two do you remember the girl in the hallway you know like or whatever <laughs> you know it's like well, okay 
Because my other issue with this is that this is a bad period movie. They do yes. not get 2004 right at no. all. No part And of I understand. All. 2004 sucked. Um, but clothes were well, bad. We have a lot of evidence Cars of were how bad. it sucked. <laughs> and I can, I can give it to you in... in we're, I have a, a still frame that I captured. This is from two minutes and 40 seconds into the film. It's right as she's getting home to see her family inside her beautiful American Pennsylvanian home, which why someone would go to Japan to be a care worker when they have a home like that at their home makes no sense to me whatsoever, but fine. He, but like the husband and the daughter, they get up when she gets home. They're going, oh, mommy, mommy. They're hugging each other. The dolly's rolling by. They've got a grandfather clock. And on the wall is a fully touchscreen thermostat yep. for the home, right? Like, And not like a, not like a touchscreen thermostat that you would find like if you were at a really nice home in, in the early 2000s, but like a brand-ass new color, yeah. you know, touchscreen thermostat. Does not and go there is, here. <laughs> it does not go here. And again, I'm, I don't want to be that guy. Period stuff is hard. Right, going out and finding every car, you know. But like I like said, I remember, we have so much evidence of how 2004 looked. Digital right. cameras existed. We don't like it's not it's not lost to time. So there's really no excuse to not get details like that right. I mean, I, that's my perspective. Is that we have so much visual evidence that you can look at. It's not like trying to reconstruct the 1920s when, you know, maybe we didn't know what the inside of somebody's apartment in Chicago in 1920 would have looked like exactly. So we got to kind of piece it together. But this one, they just went to a nice house that had the layout that they wanted and they just shot there and they didn't think about any of that stuff. And uh, the cars in this, most of the cars are actually from the eighties which I know they're trying to make it seem like, oh, the people are poor, they don't have money or whatever. But I'm like, no, a 1986 Chevy Caprice in 2006 would have been in the junkyard. Yeah. Like it's not still running with a bit of rust on the wheel wells. It's dead. (laughs) The engine is gone. Rats live in it now. Like it's done. So like that kind of stuff too. I was like, okay, if it was 2006 and I didn't have any money, I would drive a 1994 Ford Taurus. That's what you <laughs> drove in 2006. Everyone had a 1994 Ford Taurus if you didn't have money in 2006. That's what you drove. All right. It's just like little things like that just kept jumping out at me. And I didn't, you know, and I, again, I don't want to be that guy, but in, if you're going to set it in that time period, when, it, when that time period is so close to memory for a lot of people, Right, like yeah, a lot I'm of. I'm not dead. <laughs> yeah, like I'm. I'm not I, you know, even I'm, that old. I know you're you're young and spry and full of life, whereas I'm you know decrepit and ancient. But even I can look back and be like, dude, <laughs> nobody was driving. <laughs> nobody was driving a Chevy Caprice in 2006. I mean, even the the like Lego sets that the kid has yeah. that he's playing with at the beginning. Lego didn't have. Well, in 2006, they had just started codifying Lego into sets like that. Like, it was a relatively new thing. I'm not going to harp on that point too much, but just little pieces like that just don't hang. And if you're trying to create a convincing 2006, it's it's working against you. Um, and I, I don't know. 
most of it's fine. The vast majority of the film is, is neutral and nondescript enough that you just kind of don't care. Um, but you know, it, it's just, there's little things it takes here you out of it. Just, I mean, it's, you know, it's a small they thing, do. but it, it does take you out of the moment. And I guess a lot of it is because it, most of the film actually felt older than 2006. It felt more like it was, it was set in the nineties yeah. instead of the early two thousands, you know, cause the early two thousands were not completely devoid of technology or, or, you know, what have you, but it was this weird kind of in between time, you know, people aren't running around with iPhones obviously, but yet, you know, he's another thing that I thought, and this is very, I don't even know, but he's drinking coffee at some point out of like what look, it's not a Starbucks cup, but it's that same kind of like paper cup with like the cardboard sleeve and the plastic top. And I'm like, I don't think those were super common. In 2006. Mm. You know, that's more of like a modern way to, to consume your, your coffee or whatever. But anyway, I, I don't want to get too bogged down in that stuff. There are elements of the production that don't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'll say. That's Many how elements. I'll sum that up. Um, so our, our overall story involves these two police detectives, which again is a bit of a callback to the original Japanese grudge, focusing on the detectives solving the mystery and weaving together these sort of, you know, vignette stories. Um, so in this case, our police detectives are played by Andrea Riseborough and Damien Bashir. Uh, Riseborough, of course, we talked about just recently with Mandy. Uh, Bashir, uh, he was in Alien Covenant. Um, he's been a lot of stuff. He's very good. I mean, and that's one of the things I feel like his, he gets kind of underserved in this film. He doesn't really get a chance to do a lot. Uh, he's a fantastic Mexican actor. He's been around for a long time, but he was kind of in a weird, um, nobody was horror, memorable horror in place. this. Yeah. Like that's part of it for sure. He was in the hateful eight. Yeah. Like not a bad actor, but I just, no. I, I was left with no impression <laughs> I was left with nothing. And I think that's because the film's so kind of chopped up that you don't really hang with anybody long enough to get to know them. Yeah. And we're given the most barest elements. So, you know, the backstory for our police detectives who we'd spend a good chunk of time with Riseborough's husband has died, I guess, <laughs> died or left. Right. I don't remember. Right. She's either died or she's left or, or he's left. Um, he, he died. He died of cancer. That's what it was. Um, so her husband dies. She's got a young kid. She's, you know, she's a rookie at the police department in this tiny town, which I'm like, I don't even know how that happens. Um, but she's a rookie. Uh, Bashir is, is a, you know, detective who's been there for a long time. He lives alone. He eats cereal and watches the, watches pyramid at breakfast, which again was another like $50,000 pyramid was never on a breakfast. But whatever. Uh, so he's, you know, like we've got these two detectives. So one's lonely. The other one is, is suffering loss. And that's it. Like we don't get anything else about them. Like what else that's all do you, you need to know, right? Like, what else do you need? And so then we've got three vignettes. The original um, woman who comes back from Tokyo carrying the grudge. So we have what's happening with her. We have an elderly couple played by Lynn Shay. So we get our, our Lynn Shay cameo in our low budget horror film because that's just mandatory at this point, I think. Um, I think she's always on call for a, a cameo. She's making money. And then good for her. <laughs> and then we have um, 
John Cho uh, and and his uh, wife who are trying to have a baby, and then they find out that the baby is something wrong with the baby. I don't remember. <laughs> something wrong I should remember with the baby. this. There's something wrong with the baby. Baby, um, not okay. But they're they're have they have to decide basically whether or not they want to to keep the child or not. Um, but like he's just a, a it's it's a side it's a side story. It's the it's not even dealt with in any significant way. Uh-huh. He's just the real estate agent for the house after they die and it's got and it gets sold. That's all. <laughs> It's, we just needed a I, name. We needed somebody yeah. to be in it. To be in the movie. Like I, I went I I remember reading this and I pulled it up to verify, but I pulled up the Wikipedia plot and the the Wikipedia plot summary does not even mention John Cho's character <laughs> of Peter. Yeah. Um, I mean there's nothing to mention. Oh uh, no, it, I, I I take that back. There are two sentences oh. about their characters. Oh. <laughs> Peter, yeah, Peter and Nina Spencer learn that their unborn, unborn child will most likely be born with ALD. He looks to selling the house, stumbles across a ghost, and then he kills his wife and child yeah. and drowns yeah. That's that's it. Like that's. I mean, John Cho, he's on the poster. Like he's he's on the poster for the film, and he gets two sentences in the plot. <laughs> so weird. Just, whatever. So again, the film is told as a sort of nonlinear narrative. The narratives are not difficult to figure out. The most challenging one is when and where the elderly couple are in relationship to the other characters. Um, that's that's really it. Um, but it's. It's a nonlinear narrative in in name only, as far as I'm concerned. It's not complex enough to really be considered no. truly nonlinear. Um, and, and the nonlinear choices it makes are mostly bewildering. Like it's like, why why are you doing this? Like, what is the point? Um, okay, so uh, obviously, you know, we're we're kind of bagging on this film already, but let's let's move fully into spoiler territory and let's address. All of the things that we both liked and disliked about El Grudge. Um, so, so what for you did work? Let's let's start there. Let's be positive since we've already been kind of like kicking it while it's down. I I liked um, well, I liked the locations. I actually really liked the way the movie looks. Um. I liked the houses that they filmed in it. I mean, I know that's such a <laughs> that's such a boring thing to say, but but I do really like the look of the movie. Um, I like Andrea Riceborough. I really do like her. Yes, uh, uh, I mean, even even yeah. as as lukewarm and unmemorable as the cast is, she is probably the only one that stands out to me as, as I, I really did like her um, I I mean I didn't like any of the little kid stuff I don't the, and the Lynn Shay cameo I always like to see her because I do like sure. her um, yeah. it wasn't my favorite cameo 
it wasn't my favorite performance from her, but I did. I, I liked that section. I liked every scene that she was in, for what it's worth. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of where I'm sitting with it. I like the people that were in this movie more than the movie itself. <laughs> yeah, I I'm kind of on you on board with you as well. I think this film again, Pesci seems to have a decent eye for just sort of standard traditional filmmaking. He knows where to put the camera. He knows when the camera should move. He knows when the camera should be still. Yeah. You know, I, I don't doubt his instincts in most cases. I think some of the horror stuff is shot a little bit boringly, um, you know, but can he do shot reverse shot? Absolutely. Yeah. And tell a story with, with pictures. Sure. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing egregious about this film. You don't watch it and go like, what? What is happening you know, like, right now? Yeah, like I wasn't no, there's, I wasn't enraged by it or anything. I was just kind of <laughs> I mean, this isn't Hellraiser Inferno. Yeah, it's it really is really isn't. It should have been. <laughs> so I think my positives for this, again, definitely on the Andrea Riceboro chain, with with what she's given to do here which is i think she's fine (laughs) she's she has to stare at a lot of things she needs to look contemplative most of the time brooding there's a lot of brooding with a child somewhere close by and look sad (laughs) And and i get why i get why they put her in the situation she's in with you know losing her husband because they're trying to build out this sympathy that she has for this woman at 44 Rayburn Drive who killed her family. Yeah. Right. Like she's, she's trying, I mean, that's what she had, that's what she wanted. And yet here, you know, here we are. But I think that a lot of the film still wants to be a mystery. But I think that the mystery components aren't going to work for fans of the Grudge series because we already know what's happening. And I realize you can't make a movie for the fans exclusively. You have to make a movie that plays to people that don't know, and that's okay too. But building this as a mystery about, at this point, one of the largest horror franchises in the world (laughs) and trying to make it be like, why are these people dying? It's like there's some kind of crush you know it's like was this the best choice for this mm. really i mean this is that's kind of where i was expecting a knowledgeable character to come in and be like yo guys i saw this in the news or i don't even know and it's the and just like it's the grudge right like we we got some grudging going on they're like you know and some, some people talking maybe they're saying like have you all heard about this grudge <laughs> I mean, because that was the other piece about the original Grudge movies. I guess if they, you know, they did them so one right after the other in terms of the timeline of the film that there wouldn't be time for the legend to spread. But one of the things, even though the, the current Ring sequels are awful, one of the things that at least tries to acknowledge is that eventually if something like this is really happening, word going to get out. Yeah. Right. Somebody's going to be like, yo, Have you heard I heard about, about this chick that calls you <laughs> yeah, and you know, about seven days later you die. <laughs> You know, like people would be talking about it. Um, But, you know, some of the motivations and stuff are, they just don't necessarily work. So the structure of the film is we open with, you know, lady from Tokyo coming home. Obviously, 
but we don't know that something bad happens. All we get is a like zoom in shot or a, a push in shot on her face after she hugs her family, and we know oh something's wrong. She's <laughs> possessed. <laughs> the, the grudge is here. The grudge came for us all. You know whatever. And so we don't know what happened. We know that's 2004. Then we flash forward, and I don't think do we even get a time indicator like that it's um, 2006 i guess we do we yeah do. like so yes. so we flash forward with andrea riseborough getting her kid out of bed and we know oh it's 2006 two years later so the intervening two years are now the question so the first piece of the mystery is they find an abandoned car in the woods with a dead body inside that dead body is another homemade worker. Man, homemade workers really just get they, business yeah. in this <sighs> franchise. My goodness. Japanese horror just... is rough on the homemade workers. <laughs> They're just getting grudged all over the place. <laughs> but the uh, they find her and she is just maimed and torn apart in this car, basically. <laughs> that was it's really a, horrific. I will it's say, a good practical effect. I was yeah. kind of impressed that the horror in this movie really does go there. It does, yes. There are a lot of like physical prosthetics. They can tell they spent money and time developing. There's a lot of decay. Like that's yeah. you know, it's a common theme in the grudge film. Again, this film started off with pictures of garbage bags, so they're just like hitting it I, hard. I from had the a beginning. couple of, of uh, moments where I was like, Oh my god. Oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> oh Lord. Yeah, oh god. I always she like just it put his fingers in there. No, no. Um yeah, so I mean, there's there's some good stuff, but they find this aid worker, and then like the guy says, "Oh, she worked at 44 Rayburn Drive." I think he even said it. I think he said it like that. I'm pretty sure. Um, he put it, it was very spooky, and and so then Demian Bashir, he like you know he does the immediate you know oh I know what that is kind of thing, but then he won't tell Andrea Riceboro. She goes over to investigate herself, finds the house which is still abandoned, which is is good. I mean that's that's good abandoned house. With curse, very it's, scary. It's good. Very should, scary. It's what it should be. <laughs> but when she goes in there, it's it's not actually abandoned. There's an old woman still living there, and here's where again their attempt to be a non-linear narrative starts to kind of get a little waffly, right? Because Lynche plays an elderly woman who was being taken care of by this aid worker, but also her husband. And so when Andrea Riseborough finds her, this is now 2006, right? So two years after the original you know, murders or whatever happened. But she's apparently been living in this home for a while. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember, is, is, she, is she dead already? I guess she is. Uh, um, yeah. is is Chase still alive in 2006? I don't remember. I, I don't. You know, think I'm not so. sure. I don't. I don't think so. But no, I don't think she is. Okay. Um, because the husband's <laughs> definitely not. What does it say like, about the husband's the like can't tell. <laughs> yeah, the husband's like getting eaten alive by maggots, but Chase like alive in the kitchen or appears to be. And she's begging for help, and then Andrea Riceboro just kind of runs away. As you do. I would. And, well, she calls for an ambulance, so I think Lynn Shea's still alive. But so, yeah, like, human beings don't, if, if nobody's, if, if she's, you know, suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's or something along those lines, 
and she's been living in that house. That aid worker had been dead for months. Yeah. At least. Her husband had been dead for months. So you you can tell me that this woman's like been living in this house for like six months, unable to fend for herself, unable to <laughs> like purchase food. Like like what I don't think she would still be alive. Like I just really don't. Yeah. And I uh, anyway, like, I didn't, again, I, mean, I was just It didn't seem plausible. I mean, it didn't. It and, didn't that w- yeah. and it didn't. Work I guess that was for my me, issue. I guess. <laughs> no, because then we we don't get any follow up on that, right? Because she just runs out of the house. She calls for an ambulance. You know, car six five six. Need a, need need ambulance. Need need, need help. A, need an ambulance. And then it just cuts to her driving down a country lane at night, where she sees you know ghost faced little girl. And, and it was just this. It was just this real weird like. Okay, so. What happened with her? <laughs> is she dead? The is she going to be okay? The came, took her away. My other question was, why hasn't she been grudged yet? <laughs> like, <laughs> been grudged? Does, uh, <laughs> so, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it was, you know, I mean, did the ghost take mercy on her because she had Alzheimer's? And like, well, she won't even realize she's been grudged. We can't grudge her, you know? She lacks the mental awareness, the mental acuity to be grudged. So the ghosts are just like, eh, let her stay. Let her hang out now. <laughs> She'll be fine. I mean, I, there is this underlying thing in, in all of the grudge movies that the ghosts are basically psychologically torturing you, which I could get get that, right? Like they're, they're, they're causing suffering kind of thing. Um, and that's, that's fine. I mean, that's, that's an interesting mm-hmm. component. But again, we don't since we're telling this nonlinear narrative, okay, like now in 2006, the couple that moved in after the family that died, they're still there, but you know, everybody's dead. And the wife is, is now like in the ravages of dementia and she you know, barely surviving. And then, you know, she goes to Demi Bashir cause you know, obviously she knows that he knows what's going on and he kind of lays out the story of 44 Rayburn, his, um, his partner, I guess, which which is kind of a late reveal, but I guess we can talk about that a little bit. William Sadler is in this, um, and and William Sadler, good, I mean, uh-huh. obviously, um, but he plays uh, Detective Wilson. So Demian Bashir's character is Detective Goodman. So it's Goodman <laughs> good Wilson, <man. laughs> good man. He's a good man. Uh, I loved it. Did you see when when she goes over to his house when he's watching on TV? <laughs> He's watching like uh, uh, I thought it was Jeffrey Hunter's uh, portrayal of Christ, King of Kings, but I think it was a different one. I think it was a cheaper one, probably a, a probably a public access one. But he's like literally watching Jesus on TV. It's like, okay, come on. Uh, yeah, Jesus. well, just want to make sure you get it. Yeah, do you get it? His experiences on Forty Four Rayburn Drive turned him into a religious man. Okay, all right, okay. Um, but it, so his, he kind of lays out the story that 44 Raven drive, terrible thing happened. <laughs> you know, nobody, nobody go anymore. Right? Don't go big, bad. Don't go soup bad. Don't, don't go to there. Bad news. Um, and that's when we cut to our first sort of John Cho scene. And again, we, we are told that it's 2004 again. So we know that we've gone back in time, which Call me crazy. 
if you're going to tell a nonlinear narrative, don't constantly remind the audience where we are in the timeline. Yeah. Right? You just you just let that stuff well, lay there. And I know that the I'm original Great American by Japanese movies, but, but I feel like nobody's going to get it. So <laughs> right. I just, I want to explain it. Right. I want to explain all of it. Because I would have believed 100% that John Cho and Betty Gilpin were operating in the same time period as the two police detectives. And then like that could have been the big reveal that, oh no, he was the real estate agent for Rayburn Drive and... You know, you yeah. reveal at the end that he's been dead the whole time, and now maybe he's, he's the grudge. I don't know. <laughs> you know, and, like we've been seeing movie. his ghost and stuff. I don't know. It's it's one of those things. I think the movie is underutilizing its premise and underutilizing. Uh, that's its actually a really good way to put it because it that that's it. It's just not doing enough with what it has. Like you have this this film series that. All the work has been done for you. All of the groundwork has been laid for you. And you just have to tell your story. And you don't even have to do it in a linear way. And this movie's just like, no, we're going to be really, really super standard. And really simple. As simple as possible. Yeah, so... Yeah, so in any case, the, the basic story that gets unfolded and they keep showing that goddamn sign for Rayburn Drive throughout the whole movie over and over and over and over again. Did like, you yes, forget? we get it. It's Ray, it's Raper Drive. Where is it? The, the character says it. I'll get it. It's it's okay. Where you guys. are we? Um, so in 2004, the Landers, who is the the lady that came back from Tokyo, yeah, they at some point engage John Cho and his wife, who are real estate agents to sell their home insinuation being bad things were happening in the house. They want to sell it and move, right? That's because they're getting grudged and they're like, we got to get ungrudged. So we'll move. Right. Um, so he needs to drop off paperwork, something. So he goes into the house and much like in the original grudge, um, and the, the people who came in there, the family is dead inside and, and he doesn't know, right? Nobody knows that they're dead yet. Um, and so he has an encounter with the little girl who is being set up as a sort of Toshio Which I did not like analog. this. I don't, I go back and forth with spooky kids. I feel like it has to be done well if it's going to be done because we have so many, I mean, thanks to the ring, we have so many creepy kids in movies and mm -hmm. I didn't like this one. I just, it wasn't very good. Well... My other issue is that the grudge and its its ghostly characters have a very specific aesthetic. Um, and and you blame it on the original actress that played Kaiko and and Toshio, but like that pale face, yeah. empty eyed. This one they look more just dirty, yeah, and burned. Um, it's 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 different. Um. And it varies, right? Because in the shower scene later with John Cho in the like the poster shot with the hand reaching through his hair, which they kind keep of thing doing. happens. That's, that's a contractual they, obligation. You have to do contractual that. Contractual obligation. Got to have the hand <laughs> in the hair. Um, and like then it's pale and, and looks more like you know a typical grudge ghost. Typical if grudge. You want to call it that. 
And I think my, you know, to, to really just simplify it down, I think my biggest issue, and I, you could argue that it's, it's an issue with the grudge series itself. So this film is not necessarily responsible for creating this problem, but you know, Peter's in the midst of this, uh, John Cho's character, Peter, is in the midst of this, you know, incredible life crisis, right? Do we keep the baby? Do we not keep the baby? Do we deal with this? Do we not deal with this? It's, it's hard. It's challenging. It's emotionally fraught. I, I want to see human beings engaging in that situation and trying to figure it out. That's good. But all of that gets basically totally sidelined and he is boned because he stepped into the house and dropped two pieces of paper on a table, right? Like all of his other concerns and problems about his wife, his child and all that stuff fades away immediately because he dropped off paperwork. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And that's part of it too. Like I wish that this film and, and and again, this, this could be against grudge code. I don't know if there's some sort of (laughs) internal, internal grudge code that, that has been established. I, I wish that one of these films would at least experiment with the possibility of an escape condition. Yeah. Even if it, even if it came to nothing, I think because it's, it was just really hard for me to engage with these characters struggles, knowing that the moment they set foot in that house, the moment they even stepped through the door, they were essentially dead. Yeah. Maybe it'd be a little while before it happened, but they were dead. It just, it removed something for me. Now in the original grudge, I didn't have that issue for some reason. Maybe it was just the structure of that one, or maybe it was the acting. But in that one, I still was like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm hoping for the best here. And well, and in this one, I just, it seemed fatalist from the to moment. Be, to be fair, job, yeah. I, I don't feel like the first Grudge movie, either Japanese or American, was asking you to invest very much in those characters. Like, it, kind of like a yeah. typical horror movie. It's just like, well, here they are. But don't get close because <laughs> this is a grudge. <laughs> some right, some grudging is yeah. going to happen. Um, but in this movie, I I kind of felt like we were being asked to like these people and to engage with them a bit more emotionally. But how can we? They've been grudged. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's a real. It's a real issue with with this film, and I, I don't I don't know if it was the best choice to sort of build these characters as sort of sympathetic things. And the other piece that I was kind of curious about, and I was going to get your read on this. So, so Peter gets grudged, and then he kills his wife and unborn child. Uh-huh. Does that mean that Peter's house is now grudged? Mm, according to grudge mechanics it should be <laughs> i mean that's kind of what i was thinking i was like okay well is is he now grudged? they've kind of is, turned is the he... grudge into the videotape from the ring <laughs> where, like, it just <laughs> travels from person to person right you know and so i'm like okay well is that how they plan to keep moving the sequels and, and maybe is that why they hired john Cho to be this like nothing part in this movie is he supposed to be like the ghost moving forward where he is the, the one now doing the grudging. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't know, but I, I almost again, you know, when, once all this stuff started developing, I was like, okay, well, where is one of the previous people we've seen in a grudge movie going to show up in this to be like, Oh, I was the one who actually brought it here. 
right? Which I almost would have preferred instead of inventing another character. But in any case, we follow Peter for a while. We kind of go through his story. He's seeing strange things. He's observing, you know, he's seeing ghosts. He meets the little girl, um, which I'm trying to remember. Was there a scene in the original Grudge where somebody has like a conversation with Toshio? Uh Sort like of. he's still alive? Like, like they didn't they realize he's he was still dead? Alive. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I thought there was. I thought there was. So I was like, okay, well, we're doing that now. Where he's meeting the little girl. He thinks she's alive. He's trying to get her help. And, you know, she's actually a grudge. Yeah. But then, I don't know. And then things just kind of spiral. Because now we're jumping around and... Uh, Andrea Risebro gets attacked in her home by a ghost that may have been the husband, who now also is a ghost. Again, this movie just doesn't, it doesn't give you enough. It wants its jump scares, and it wants you to have, like, your creepy moments, but it's not doing enough to help me understand truly what's going on. And I guess it's just because they're complicating things. They're just making stuff harder. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. The middle, the middle section of this film is a big blur for me, even though I've watched this thing like three times now. I have that same issue. Like, I found myself a minute ago scrubbing through the film. Like, I watched this, but I can't really remember what happened. <laughs> like, how can I not remember a movie that I swear to God I watched? Um, <laughs> and it's just, it's disconnected. Like, everything yeah. feels disconnected. The, the narrative, unfortunately, does not hold as a as a singular entity in any way that i can really get behind yeah. it's it's very strange um you know it's like it's like a half an hour of just spooky things happening right just spooky 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 and so then we we move back to the older couple and we get a scene with them um, I don't remember if they labeled the time jump with that one or not. They did. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Sorry. I'm, I'm kind of also scrubbing through it at the same time to remind myself. And so this is the one It jumps back to 2005. And then basically this elderly couple was the ones who bought the house after the original family was discovered dead. And then the house was sold, presumably, I guess, by Peter, or maybe that would have happened after he was also grudged, I guess. <laughs> Um, and so we meet all of them and, and I think it's par part of the problem is that since they are telling this non-linearly, we already know what happens to all these people, right? We know their ultimate end. We know that this friendly man who's married to Lin Shay is going to wind up like getting eaten by maggots in a chair. And whenever know movies <laughs> do this, you always run the risk of the audience just saying, when will the movie be over? because I already know what happened. And and like the original movies kind of escape this very narrowly. I think by keeping characterization very light to where like it, it truly doesn't matter if I know what happens to them because they're not that interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that could definitely sum up some of the issues is that the characters, somebody thought these characters are way more interesting than they actually are. Yeah. Um, and I think it would have benefited from a single character, you know, 
again, a limited story following one person's experience. Um, I, th I think the other piece of it, and, and you kind of hinted at this earlier too, is that I do not find the girl scary. No. Uh, at all. And they basically use this, this storyline. Again, it feels like they're, they're more obsessed with telling the story of the detectives than they are of telling the story of the people in the house. Yeah. Which if you kind of passively watch the original Japanese grudge, you might get that impression Maybe. that the detectives are the main characters, but it's, it's really much looser than that. That's not really what it is, but this is where we find out, you know, that William Sadler kind of became obsessed with this house that he, you know, was, was obsessed with figuring out what was going on inside of it. And then of course we ultimately find out that he, was seeing ghosts himself and he tore out his own eyes so that they couldn't torture him anymore. Um, I guess because he figured out that if you don't see them, it's fine. Right? If you hear them or sense them near you, that's okay. But seeing them is what really drives you nuts. Or something. He still seems pretty nuts regardless though. Um, but he, he tried to kill it. I don't even remember. Did he shoot himself in the head? Was that what it, what it was? Uh, but he didn't die from it or something? Did he shoot himself in the head? It's something. I don't remember. I mean, it's a good William Sadler performance. I mean, he's very dependable. Yeah. He's going to do whatever you ask him to tell you know, what you want him to come up and do. But um, But he... I guess he can still see them and stuff because they're in that there is that interrogation scene where Andrew Riceboro is like, oh, you know, uh, talk to me about this thing. And he's like, I can still see her. I can still see her. But he, he just, you know, doesn't do anything about it kind of thing. Mm. Um, but in any case, she begins unspooling that and that becomes her kind of arc for the rest of the film is just sort of figuring out exactly what this thing is, which I don't know if they ever really come to a firm conclusion on it, but but you know, it's a grudge. Right, and that's the problem, right? Like, that's the problem, is they're trying to answer a question that I've already answered, and I, I know exactly what the situation is. And there's all kinds of weirdness, you know, I mean, they're, they're spooky ghost encounters increase, they look at them on security cameras and see that there's nothing they're, they're there. very spooky. And it's so spooky. You know, and so then it's almost like the first half of the film, we get the first half of each character's story. And there's like a hard break in the middle where Riceboro's like figuring stuff out by looking at microfiche and, you know, all the shit that detectives in the 2000s would have done, I guess. Oh, yeah. And then we get the ends of the stories for all the characters, you know, and, and creepy bathtub girl. And <laughs> <laughs> like, again, I'm, I'm trivializing some of this stuff. I mean, they're well executed horror movies. Like, I don't want to make it seem like you can't watch this and be like, oh, that was very spooky and that was very scary. Um, it is. And that works. And, and it's mostly fine. But it's in service of helping us understand characters that we want to care about, but yet we're, we're sort of being prohibited from engaging with in any serious way. Yeah. Um, so... Peter gets grudged. 
he grabs some scissors and, and he goes to town on <laughs> his family. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. Like these scenes should be harrowing. Like they yeah. should just be absolutely terrifying. And they just, they aren't, they, aren't. they just aren't. Um, you know, cause really all we get is him approaching her with some scissors and then we just see aftermath. We see, you know, her laying on the floor covered in blood. We see baby nursery with, with quiet music over like, Oh no, the baby. <laughs> um, and, and then we see him drowned in a tub and, and that's it for Peter, right? That's his three scenes. He's out contractual. Took an afternoon. Yeah, I you know, we had, John, <laughs> we, had, we had John Joe for 48 hours. What did we do? Um, and it, it's it's all just very, very perfunctory. I don't know. I, I, that's really the only way I can think about it. Yeah. It's just very I mean, like, it, this is what happened. You know. And then it was over. Uh, so I guess let's advance to the end. Because again, the, the, the middle act of this is just, is just very perfunctory very vignette-y kind of like boring. it's just scene 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 and um, even if you don't like the grudge it is not boring it's not i boring. i've never perceived it as boring i mean like I, I by modern horror standards somebody going back now watching it if you've never seen anything from <laughs> that you've era never before seen a horror movie before maybe maybe you would be like oh, this is the bar i'm gonna look at my text hot I don't, I don't know that's maybe what the kids sound that. like that's what the kids sound like now um but yeah I, I just don't i don't think it would be something that's it just leaves me quite who did they make this movie for right and that's one thing that sam raimi i think has always been good at is knowing is knowing his audience. And this movie doesn't seem like it's made for grudge fans, nor does it seem like it's made for people who just want to see like an interesting horror film. It's, it's neither of those. Um, and so, you know, I'll say the, the Lynn Shay kill scene where she kills the husband and the lady drives off and she's like chopping off her own fingers, which again calls into question. How is she still alive? Like six months later, I don't, you know, like, yeah, like there's some, some good effects there. I mean, there's some stuff that, you know, probably never seen quite so grisly before. But it doesn't, it didn't really feel like it. It's one of those things like a, a, a later era saw movie where I'm just watching it going, okay. <laughs> like it's gross, <laughs> but I feel nothing. I don't feel anything watching this happen other than just kind of vaguely grossed out. It's sure. Yeah. And I, I guess that's part of it is like, it, it seems like modern sort of gore horror audiences have kind of worked their way in to a, a franchise that at least had a good understanding of how to manage its own tone and how to manage its own universe. Right. Like, cause the grudge films felt kind of special, even as the J horror rise was beginning, you know, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, like, there's that scene with the long walk as Lin Shay's, like, going up the steps. And you know what she's going to do when she gets to the top. Like, there's no, no question about it. She's not going to go up there and have smoke. I mean, she's going to kill herself. You know, so, like, why are we extending this? Or why can't we jazz this up with, like, an orderly following her up? Being like, what are you doing, man? I'm like, 
let's go back to your room. Oh, I really want to help. And then she like you nose dives off the staircase or whatever. Um, it's just, there's just, I don't know. There's lots of opportunities here to sort of build more compelling scenes and more interesting moments. And they were just like, nah, let's snap her neck on a, on a, on a railing. Cause you know, fun. And, and also like, fast. What is it? <laughs> Quick, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know, man. Like it's just small choices. Like I said, the ghosts don't really work. And then once we're current, once we know, once we know what's happened to all of the previous characters, right? Peter's dead. The, the landers are, you know, the grudge ghosts now. And the, uh, uh, the old couple is, is dispensed with. Now it's just the detective's story, right? They're, they're just kind of like dealing with stuff, I suppose. And so Riseboro, I don't know Riseboro, why Riseboro is so affected by all of this. That's the other piece here. Like yeah. she's doing a good job making me seem like she's very emotional. But, but apart from the fact that her husband <laughs> died from cancer, why? Why is she so upset about being involved in this situation? Um, and, and, and what is, what is her emotional connection here? And I don't feel like the film has done a very good job of developing that at all. So given that she is the climax of the film, like her experience with the grudge ghosts is like the big moment where they're like attacking her openly and knocking her down and doing all this crazy stuff. I should, I should hopefully feel somewhat more emotionally connected to her. Maybe. I mean, if, if not, because you know, you're going to kill her off, that's fine, but that's not seemingly the goal here. So a lot of this her sort of like final act as she's going and having this heart to heart with, uh, Damien Bashir's character and, and they're talking about what to do. You know, I, I guess, is that where she decides that the idea is to burn the house? Uh, burn the house? It's yes. Good. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's talk about burning the house. Cause I, I said earlier already, like, I think these movies would benefit from having some kind of potential escape condition. So that's what they're trying to do here. But at any point, did you believe that burning the house would change anything? Absolutely not. Me either. Like just no chance in hell. Like it just wouldn't work. And, and I know they wanted, they got their nice shot of like the little girl burning the, the Bernie girl ghost or whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, like at, at no point did I ever believe that this was going to stop anything. Cause they'd already, if the ghosts had been isolated inside the home, right. Which in the, in the original grudge, that's the, that's the way it works, right? It's inside the house. I guess, well, in the, the end of the first one, they, she's like screwing with her at the hospital and stuff. But like it, they've already established that the ghosts don't have to stay in the home. Yeah. So why would why would burning the home remove the grudge? I, I that seems logical. But I see what seems, you tried to do, but it also right, makes no sense. It, it's also like the same thing in the ring they keep trying to do. We're like, oh, if you move the body or burn the body or I don't know, kiss the body, like something <laughs> will make her not want to kill you anymore. And then every time they try it, it's like, well, it didn't work. Yeah, no, she <laughs> always wants to kill you. <laughs> so I, I wanted I guess what I should have said earlier is I wanted a better win condition like a better yeah. potential like oh this is the way to do it 
you know, maybe it's my, my love of exorcisms, you know, maybe we got to bless the house or something. Maybe we got to bring over like priests from every religion and have them do something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's a, I don't think there's really any one or two things that can save this movie because this movie is, is many, many, many things that just aren't really hanging or working together. And one thing isn't going to fix that, unfortunately. Um, you know, I wish it could, but it's just not. So it, I guess it is worth noting that there are a couple of different endings to this film. Um, we'll, we'll talk about the one here in a second. The one we get in this is she's like, she moves, I guess, or just, no, she doesn't even move. It's the same house, I guess. Yeah. And her kid goes to school and she's like waking him up out of bed, kind of like in a mirror of our first time uh, meeting them. And, and then like, she finds out that she was hugging uh, a ghost boy girl and uh, she gets dragged away by her hair by ghost mom. And, and that's the end, right? That's, that's the end of the film. And so there is an international ending where after Andrea Riseborough burns the house down, she sees Burke, and then they drive down a horror, uh, down a road for a new home. <laughs> you were going to say they, horror lane. Uh, they horror, drive down uh, horror lane horror together. Horror lane. Um, and then they pull into the driveway of the home and enter, and the credits begin rolling. So it's just more ambiguous about, you know, did we fix anything or did we not? Um, so... I, I didn't know. see that this one. Is, I saw the the horror. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. I I, apparently, that's the American ending. The other one was for international markets, where they wanted, to, I guess, leave it more upbeat, right? <laughs> and this one, like she she gets murdered at the end of this. Like she is yeah. dead. She got grudged. Um, of course, she do did. It. Just all about getting grudged up in here, and and you know, so everything ends, and and there's this just kind of flat shot of the front of the house, the air roll credits over that in total silence. That bothered me. I didn't care for it either. It just was real. I know what you're trying to do and I don't care for it. Yeah. Right. I don't, just I, this hard. I don't like that. <laughs> it's just that hard cut, like bomb. everything's done. Total silence. It's just the house. And now maybe her house is grudged. Maybe maybe now there are three plots of land <laughs> in this tiny town in Pennsylvania that just been grudged up the booty. Pretty soon, and, they're all going to be grudged. <laughs> and I, I don't know. It's just one of I those. I also didn't, I mean, I didn't even like her death scene. It just, a lot of, like, that felt cheap. <laughs> Maybe it's because I've seen it so many yeah. times with the other grudge movies, but I don't know. I liked it. I liked those. Why did I like those? Why do I, I dislike this? Something yeah, about this doesn't think, feel genuine. You know, I think that's an interesting point of discussion is, is I think it addresses the fact that, that a lot of film franchises, and I do not want to turn this into a discussion of like Star Wars or Star Trek or anything. Yes, but, you do. I, maybe <laughs> I do. I always do. Everything is Star Trek. But like, it's it is really difficult when you have an original creative team that has what I would say is clear vision 
to execute, it is really difficult to recreate that without the input from some of the members of that team. And a lot of it comes down to not necessarily technical execution, but feel. Right. There is, I mean, movies are a commercial product, but they are also art. Art creates emotion. It engages with the senses to produce feelings. That's what it does. And so the original grudge and even the grudge too, to a certain extent, have a feel to them. They have a a presence that this film just does not have. Not for lack of trying, right? But it's, it's much the same complaint that modern Star Wars fans or Star Trek fans have when watching newly produced Trek, which is, is not connected to, you know, I mean, Michael Piller wrote or produced pretty much every single thing that Star Trek created in the 1990s. And, and I have, have written about this before. I've talked about this before with lots and lots of people that I think Michael Piller is probably more responsible for the 90s and early 2000s Trek feeling than any other single person involved in Star Trek. That's fair. He approved the, he approved the scripts. He wrote many of the scripts himself, especially in the TNG and, and Deep Space Nine era. Obviously, Iris Stephen Barrett came in and sort of show ran the hell out of Deep Space Nine. But Michael Piller is still there, working in the background, keeping the writer's room together, trying to keep those storylines running. You know, Voyager, by then, he was he had gotten ill and he wasn't really working on the series that much. And I think there's, that's the reason why Voyager has its struggles with <laughs> that feeling, especially in the first three or four seasons. And then sort of hits a stride at the end. That's that's pretty solid. Um, obviously, Enterprise was a whole other thing. Well, you know, with, with um, Voyager, it know, comes down to the same principle. It didn't feel genuine until those later seasons. Right. It's, it's struggled to find that, that sense of Star Trek. And, and this just doesn't have that sense. Again, I, I cannot express more. All of the pieces are present. Multiple storylines. People interacting with the home in different ways and then getting grudged. Um, terrible ways in which they die or get hunted or try to escape it. And then a couple of people trying to figure out what's going on. Like Those are the pieces of the grudge, right? I mean, if I sat down on a chessboard and I said, what pieces do I need to have in place to begin making my game moves? All of the pieces are there, right? They didn't forget anything. But then when they started actually playing the game and moving the pieces into position, they were like, well, the knight doesn't have to move like this. Maybe you could just do this. Or maybe the pawn, instead of only moving two spaces, this time we're going to need it to move four. And that's okay. And they just kind of don't really understand how the game is being Right. Pieces are present, but just not really working. And it's not for lack of trying. Andrea Riseborough is doing a good job with what she has here, but I don't know why I should care about any of her problems. Then yeah. Bashir shows up. He looks sad. He seems like a nice guy. He smokes a lot. Okay. Uh, William Sadler, he got his two scenes. He got to renew his SAG card for the year. I'm very happy about that. Um, but, but why? Right. And yeah. it just kind of keeps going. So I feel like it's just one of those things that. If, if you're a longtime fan of The Grudge, this probably isn't going to be satisfying. If you're just a general horror fan going to a movie, you might be okay with it because there are some interesting deaths. But the other part of it is that I, I think you're right. I think they wanted some of that Saw money. They wanted yeah. some of that Saw component because The Grudge movies have never really been about gore. No. Um, That's what all I like. The deaths and, 
Yeah, and all the all the grudge movies, the deaths are just jump scares. Yeah, it ghost appears and and then the person's dead, right? You know, maybe they fall off of something and break their neck, like Lynchay or whatever. But but it's just it's just a scare. Um, but in this one, you know, we got decapitated fingers, we got mutilated bodies, you your, we got maggots crawling through nasal yeah. passages. Um, but you know, it just doesn't really hang together as a singular horror experience, no. and certainly not one that I would heavily recommend. And that's I guess that's kind of where we're headed with all of this is that it. it I don't know who I would recommend this to. I really don't uh, like I can't think of an audience because like the nice thing about the grudge, especially was that if you had kind of a younger audience, right. Or an audience that was a little bit more sort of like, I'm not really into horror. You could still kind of toss them the grudge and be like, give this a shot. See what you think. It's, it's, it's got some moments, but for the most part, it's pretty low key. Yeah. I can't do that with this one. Right. Cause it goes too far in the other direction a couple of times. Um, but yet at the same time, I, I don't think I would recommend it to somebody who's like, dude, did you see blood massacre seven? They ripped that girl's tits off. You know, like I, I can't really throw this to them either. Cause there's not enough of that there for them. So it's, again, it's like, who is this movie for? <laughs> you know, like and, what audience were you going? For? And frankly, I don't remember any of the marketing to be able to say like, oh, well they were going after this group. Um, and I don't know if that's just, you know, a consequence of when the movie was released, but I have no idea who would like this movie. Certainly not me. And, and hey, maybe that's why it was released in Fuck You, It's January. Yeah. Because the studio didn't know either, right? Because you don't put out movies that are going to be successful in January. It doesn't happen. Um, and this was released January 3rd, Ooh. right? Like, going to get that, going to get that big movie going audience at the new year all right nice maybe if somebody was hung over from the new year two days after the new year like we're so drunk they just stumbled into a movie theater and sat down they'd be like oh john chosen or like someone who never left the movie theater on a drunken bender from christmas like they've just been at the movie theater maybe they'll (laughs) see this yeah right i mean you know i mean if you think about it movie theaters have everything got nice large bathroom. I've been living on yeah. snow caps and slushies. <laughs> Let's the watch the crunch, y'all. The place that I've got has got a full restaurant and bar, so you can just go and get a little bit, get a little bit of some of this, a little bit of some of that. Good to go. Um, yeah, it's, this is a hard one to recommend for me because there are better grudge movies to go watch if you want a grudge movie. Um, I, I just feel like this one if the goal was to relaunch the grudge franchise failed, if the goal was to reinvigorate a love for the previous grudge films failed. failed. Um, so, you know, it's like, it's not hitting on any of the beats that it was obviously carefully designed to try and hit upon. Again, I think something could have helped by tying it to characters from some of the other grudge films for those fans because, I mean, that's something that will bring original fans out. If they had gotten, for example, Sarah Michelle Gellar to come back in some sort of cameo, like instead of... But it, it feels like this movie wanted to be better than that. Like it was almost trying sure. to be more of an art house version of The Grudge. Like it would never stoop to having Sarah Michelle Gellar. And <laughs> I, I guess that that put me off. Yeah, it definitely seemed like it was going for like, a oh, this is real horror, right? And I mean, obviously, a lot of this is probably also spinning off of it. I mean, the success of it in box offices got all of the studios looking for horror films going again. And this would kind of fit that timeline 
pretty close as well. Because, you know. And this movie did make money. I mean, that's of the course. other thing worth mentioning. Horror movies they, they make sp- money. They're always they going to make, make money. money. They spent very little on it. Uh, I mean, the budget on the high end was listed as $14 million. It made fifty at the box office. So, I mean, it still did fine. You know, it, it was not the smash success of the original Grudge, but it's on par with, like, Grudge 2. Yeah. You know, made about the same. Um, so it's, it's a weird franchise. It's one that I, I would very much like to see come back and be a presence in the American horror scene. Maybe that's why, maybe that was my problem. My expectations were too high because it was like, oh man, a new grudge. That would be awesome. And then it was not mm. <laughs> awesome. Mm. But again, this, they give me the same time every with the ring stuff. Cause I went, I saw the rings or whatever that one was <laughs> rings. I think it's called. Uh, the one with Vincent D'Onofrio and the cicadas. Oh, and uh, I saw that and I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> this is just a horrible idea from top to bottom. And and this unfortunately kind of hangs with that. Maybe just Hollywood is, in the grudge especially, again, I think the magic sauce with the grudge is that it, it kept its Japanese sensibilities by still having a Japanese director. And this one just feels like it's gone too far towards the American side. And it's kind of lost that special juice that made it kind of unique, uh, at least for me. And maybe in the hands of someone else. Maybe. But, uh. Yeah, I don't... I mean, I know it's it's common practice in Hollywood now to pull a kind of unknown indie director and put him on a big project. And this wasn't even that big of a project, honestly. Um, But it's it's still kind of the thing. But even his second film, uh, Piercing... It had Mia Wasikowska in it. Um, Great. But it <laughs> I'm too sorry. was... I'm sorry. That was overly hostile. <laughs> no, it's, it's okay. I, <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a small one. I didn't see this one, but I, I do remember when it came out. But it too had a lot of like self-harm body horror stuff in it, which seems to be sort of like his thing. Like he likes that. Because um, it's like a guy who has like a piercing fetish, I think. Um, it, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, I don't it's, like any of the things that you're saying. <laughs> I, again, it seems like the grudge doesn't need a guy who's like, oh, I think it's awesome to like jam a knife into somebody's eye. That's cool. The, like, that's not the grudge. That's no. not what the grudge is about. Or and at also least in, like, in my I don't need that. And I don't want to see movies like that. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> maybe, maybe I've just finally hit that point in my life where I I'm tired of trying to be cool and watch things that absolutely are harrowing and terrible. I don't want to do it. I don't, I don't want to do it. I just, I feel like this movie was somebody had a checklist and they were just checking boxes. And as long as the boxes were checked, the production was happy. Yeah. And you know, I mean, even if you look at the stories being told here, young family struggling with the potential loss of an unborn child, Okay, is that terrible and a good premise for, for some character development between actors? Sure. Yes, sure. But it's also, you know, have we seen that before? Yeah. Um, police officer struggling with the loss of a partner. I've seen it before. Uh, lonely police officer uh, who, you know, just doesn't take care of himself. Yeah, I've, I've seen Seven, bitch. Like, yeah. Like, I mean, like, we've seen all this stuff before. You know, why one of the things that the grudge movies were kind of fun was because they were just kind of regular people, right? Just kind of like folks. 
getting into this problem and then trying to find a way out of it or, or dying. And in this movie, it felt like they were trying to populate it with more special stories. But in trying to make the story special, they were just more movie-like. It's just more like yeah. what I expect to see in cinematic horror. Um, and, you know, I appreciate any horror movie that tries to give some depth and backstory to its characters. There's nothing wrong with that. That's that's good. But in a movie that is basically built upon the principle that the moment you interact with any of these <laughs> things, you are dead. It, it just seems like wheel spinning. It, right? it seems like you're, you're investing your time in the wrong place. And you know, and, I'm, and it, these aren't slasher movies. They don't have to just be disposable teenagers. That's that's fine. Um, but it it the emotional beats that it was obvious they were wanting me to experience didn't really happen. And that maybe I'm just a terrible person. Maybe that's why. Um, well, I just don't have are, any then, any soul. Then I am also because it didn't it did not work. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we can uh, we can wrap up our thoughts on The Grudge 2020, uh, which is also one of my problems with this film. Is that now I have to refer to it with the year it was made in the title. And the and only I time don't like doing that. Yeah. Anymore. The only time I want to talk about a year in a movie title is Dracula 2000. <laughs> Gerard Butler was so sexy as Dracula. It's the such a good actor. My blood anytime. Oh my god. It's so good. Oh my god, is that vitamin C? Oh god, <laughs> that, that album was so good. <laughs> oh, there's a scene that takes place in a Virgin Megastore, and you can see her album on this on the record. Say, oh my god, it's so self referential Virgin so Megastore, that's where I get all my music. <laughs> that's my sole music purchasing experience. I love buying discs at the Virgin Megastore. Who doesn't? Uh. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man. It, so this is a non-recommend for me, which is rare. I mean, here we're, we're trying to find the gems, right? The hidden gems. Um, but with this one, I feel like you would just be better served if you've got an hour and a half. This is only 90 minutes long. If you've got an hour and a half, just go watch one of the other Grudge movies. And yeah. At this point, I'm kind of like, just watch any yeah, of Really, any one of them, because it's going to be better. And it's, and that makes me sad to say, like, uh, again, I feel like not telling the multiple narratives and doing the vignettes might've been an issue, might've helped. I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, but I think that mostly just sort of like stripping the story down to its bare elements and the other, the other piece, the last thing I'll mention before we just sort of wrap up is we don't actually see any of the terror of the initial couple right mm -hmm. so like the one that comes back from japan who it was cursed who obviously winds up either killing her own family or they all get killed by the ghost i don't really know exactly what that's going to be i assume she went she got possessed and then killed them um but we don't really get to see any of that and, and one of the things about the grudge that makes especially the original is that you kind of and you see that happen, like you feel the horror of that situation being created. And they don't really do that here, mostly because they're trying to support that nonlinear narrative of when's happening, what's happening, and what's going on. So there's there's just a little bit of, of that. I mean, they describe that what happened, like the police report, they're like, oh, she did this, and this happened. But that's not like, really the same. But that's not the same, right? We really should have seen, instead of just getting that little brief opening until they get home, we really should have seen that whole story play out. 
and the formation of the grudge. But since they were wanting to tell this nonlinear story, you know, narrative, they're like, oh, but the real estate agent's got to stop by. We can't show them that yet because then they'll know what the real estate is like. Well, what's more important to your story here, man? Yeah. <laughs> Which piece of this is going to do a better job of helping establish what's going on? So in any case, I, I feel like this is a movie that is the very essence of coulda, shoulda, woulda, right? And I know it's not fair to judge a movie on coulda, shoulda, woulda, but in this particular case, that is the problem, is that there were limitless options for what they could have done. And they did a really sort of bad, rough adaptation of the original Juwan from Japan and then couldn't even really land that, which doesn't make a ton of sense. Given that when they adapted the original Grudge back in 04, they were smart enough to say like, well, all of these stories might be too complicated or it might not be interrelated enough to keep people you know, sort of interested. So we'll just focus on this. But, you know, this one was like, now nah, we'll just do what they did. And it just doesn't, I don't know. It's a very strange film for me. Um, pieces and moments work fine. But for the most part, it's just kind of a. Big fart noise. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. This is a big fart noise movie for me as well. I, I, like I said, I didn't hate it. I felt like there were things that it did well. I liked I liked the lighting and I liked the houses. Like the sets were nice. Um, yeah. I liked the performances, but the movie just felt pointless. I don't know. I, I, I felt like my time was being wasted and that's never good. And I've sure. never felt that way with a grudge movie before. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, the, the pointlessness of it, uh, Again, maybe it's just an issue that I have and maybe it's just part of the grudge, so I need to deal with it. But just having that inevitability that, that I know what's going to happen to each of these people that set foot in the house, maybe that was just enough this time. I was like, yeah, I, I don't know why I'm watching this because I know where it's going. Like, the question is just how. I, I feel <laughs> how like if the die? execution was different, that it may not, that may not have been an issue. Just if, if the yeah, rest think, of the movie was there. Yeah then it would have been fine. But it, I, yeah, I think maybe that's part of that grudge formula is you, you just keep the game going long enough that you just don't really end up getting lost in those thoughts, right? You just sort of keep moving forward, you know? But yeah, I'm not sure. But in any case, um, I cannot in good conscience recommend The Grudge 2020. Um, if you're doing some kind of grudge marathon, feel free to skip this one. Um, just kind of nip this one in the bud. Um, and uh, we'll hope that when they come back to this franchise, which they inevitably will, that they take a, a, a fresher approach to it, maybe bring some of that original creative team back. I mean, Shimizu's still making movies. I mean, the guy's not a recluse or anything. Um, just bring it back in and say, hey, man, what do you want to do? We're sorry Get about the last Grudge movie. <laughs> Please help. <laughs> yeah, we're sorry we lied to everybody about John Cho. Uh, really <laughs> sorry about that. Um, we, we wanted to make it seem like John Cho was going to be in the movie because he's really good. He overpromised and, and, you know, on the show. And just kind of wasn't. Yeah. It was just a smidgen. We've we got we this, this little kid. I mean, he's in it a bunch. Is that okay? Mm. Yeah, that works. Uh, he can be our new grudge boy for the next one. That's what we're thinking. Oh, she Yeah. <laughs> we need new grudge boys. <laughs> Every film. Bring out the new grudge boy. We've got some movie making to do. Every year, a new grudge boy or girl shall be crowned king or queen. <laughs> Who will be the grudge boy this time? Tune in on 
the grudge <laughs> path, path, pathway to the grudge on amc oh, i don't know that's a sad uh, anywho uh a, a rare miss for sam raimi hopefully he was able to recoup enough that uh he took his family on a nice vacation to the italian riviera uh, which i assume is where sam raimi would want to vacation for some reason i cannot articulate uh, but, all right, so any other thoughts on The Garage? Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, <laughs> if people have strong feelings about The Grudge and John Cho's incredible, incredible hair, um, where can they find you on the internet? Um, you can find me stalking John Cho's Twitter at Baskinator on Twitter. Very nice. Uh, I will be uh, at T Baskin on Twitter, uh, which I have recently decided is becoming an Andrea Riseboro uh, Stan account. That's that's pretty much yeah. all I post anymore. Is my Andrea Riseboro memes that movies. I craft? <laughs> I do like her a lot, and she's she's out. good in this with what she's. Got. Yeah, I mean, if you're she's if you're a fan of her, she's, she's definitely she's definitely watchable. She's maybe one of the only watchable things in this movie. Um, in the end, like, like I said, the performances were, were fun, but, uh, yeah, yeah. she's great. Like I said, one piece is not enough, uh, to, to keep the whole boat afloat, unfortunately. Not but, even close. Uh, all right. Uh, you can get us together at FP theater on Twitter and you can email us at failurepiece at gmail.com. All right. Well, we will be back in the very near future with another film that may or may not be a failure piece. We'll figure it out then. And there definitely will be grudging. Oh, there's so much grudging. I'm getting grudged right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.